0: You're listening to NapaBroadcasting.com. Welcome back to NapaBroadcasting.com. We talk a lot about local community issues, and sometimes we talk about other issues with interesting people who are an integral part of our community. One of those people is my guest, Bill Chadwick. Bill is a veteran a former member of the Napa City Planning Commission, he's long been active in community affairs. He's on the Cal Veterans Support Foundation, and he is an instructor at the Naval Postgraduate School. He just returned from Amman, Jordan, and Kinshasa in the Congo. It is my pleasure to once again welcome Bill Chadwick to NapaBroadcasting.com. Bill, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Sure thing, Jeff. Happy to be here
0: picking up kind of from the beginning because it was a little disjointed when we tried to talk when you were in the Congo. Recap a little bit about what you were doing there and a little bit about trying to bring the military there into, if not the 21st century, the 20th century.
1: Well, um, I've been trying the last few years uh, to assist militaries in foreign countries to really do a good, a better job of looking at what they're material requirements are, what kind of equipment they need to conduct operations. Now, I'm not on the operational side. I don't help anybody make decisions about what their operational requirements are, certainly the size of their battalions and what those, those operational skills need to look like. But more on what their capabilities need to be in terms of, kind of the kind of equipment they're they're purchasing, and it sometimes is it could be as large as as aircraft or as small as what night vision to be purchasing. So I do a top level uh, requirements review process uh, with military uh, organizations when I when I go places. And most recently, I was spending time with the Minister of Defense in Amman, Jordan. Uh, with the king's mm-hmm. royal uh, military organization. We were out near their military academy out in the northeast corner of Amman, which just happens to be near the town of Zakar, which is where uh, quite a few Al Qaeda right. operatives uh, were born and then thrown out of.
0: When you deal with this, I mean, there's the equipment part of it as you talk about. I mean, they need this, they need that, they need basic structure, basic organization, certain equipment. How much of it, though, in terms of being able to help these, these various military groups around the world, the areas that you're working, but but even in a more general sense, how much has to do with mindset and philosophy and attitude, things that are much harder to convey?
1: Well, it's, it totally has to do with mindset, Jeff. And that's one of the things I've found uh, happens – it occurs more in Latin America is uh, Latin American armies, especially in South America, have a much broader geopolitical view of, of their impact. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in Africa, not so much. I mean, they're really focused on the region and and how they can protect their borders. I mean, that's a big deal in, in right. Africa, uh, as well as quell, you know, Boko Haram and, and uh, al-Shabaab and some of the other terrorist groups. But it is totally a mindset uh, giving them the information they need to be able to take a look at. What the impact of what they're going to purchase has not only on their local economy in the country, but also their, their regional partners. Uh, having having an advantage in radar uh, capability, looking outside your borders and being able to see over the horizon into your neighbor's uh, countries, is, is a critical skill for, for many militaries or many countries. Uh, and also, more so now with united nations and nato missions where countries are actually stepping up and offering uh... organizations units and equipment to go to foreign places i mean we see a lot more of that now so that's a big that's a big deal right now when african countries are sending troops to another location and european countries i mean i've been uh, working in the in georgia Uh, tbilisi georgia is the capital of that that former soviet uh, country they're sending a battalion down to the central african republic to uh, conduct uh, humanitarian and peace operations uh, peace support operations so they've really got to take a look at uh, not just operating in the caucasus but also sending troops uh, to another continent
0: talk a little bit about the challenges in Africa. You talk about the borders. It seems that there really are three fronts that they're dealing with in Africa. One is the humanitarian side, which you touched on. Secondly, terrorism, which is, a, you know, becoming a bigger and bigger problem. And protection of borders vis-a-vis natural resources. That, that all three of those are pretty critical issues and every one of them in and of themselves would be a huge issue.
1: Well, the Congo... Um is the location for significant natural resources all everything from uranium in fact the uranium that was used in the first two atomic bombs that we exploded uh... in japan the uranium came from the eastern part of uh... congo uh... great stores of of uh... minerals as well as diamonds but about sixty percent of everything that is being mined in the eastern part of the congo is shipped south in trucks down to south america and between to South Africa. And between Congo and South Africa is about 1,800 miles. There's lots of robbery. Lots could go wrong. Lots lots does go wrong with that. So they're losing a lot of their potential uh, gross domestic product just based on uh, thievery. Um, there's no way to
0: fly it from one place to the other?
1: There are three air fields in the eastern part of the country, but none of them are capable of of sustained operations and, and none of them operate uh in, in bad weather. Uh there's significant challenges. The most significant challenge uh I think to answer your question more directly is Africa is just such a huge continent. I mean we're talking 7,000 miles north south and about thirty eight hundred miles east west. I mean it's huge. Uh the logistic nightmare of supporting anything be it uh, United Nations mission, uh, peacekeeping, humanitarian assistance. I mean, USAID has a $253 million budget in the Congo alone, and to support programs for for looking at all kinds of uh, pestilence, health issues, uh, diseases we don't even know about.
0: But isn't it short-sighted, just looking at the economics of what you're talking about, that if the natural resources are one of the ways in which they draw economic sustenance there and you're going to pour that much money into the country. Wouldn't you be better off building a sustainable airfield that you could fly stuff from there to South Africa and make it more economically self-sufficient at the same time the money that you're putting in goes to something that is going to feed that self-sufficiency
1: absolutely it makes perfect sense the problem is there is so much graft and corruption in the congolese government uh in the democratic republic of congo uh, Joseph Kabila, who is the president of the country, is trying to figure out how to stay in power. He wants to change the constitution. He wants to change a lot of the rules, and so what we have is any money, any funds that come into that country for development, are automatically siphoned off in large, in large quantity, to people's pockets, to private banking accounts. Uh, that's probably the mo- one of the most significant challenges facing facing the the DRC the Democratic Republic of Congo.
0: Is I mean so the idea of grand. uranium traveling this 1800 mile journey and being subject to piracy is a pretty scary prospect. It's a
1: very scary pro- prospect and um, you know diamonds are in the same bit. I mean that that's a that's a big deal in the Congo. Yeah, it would make more sense to build an airfield that's sustainable for night ops for all weather. Right. Um, Lubumbashi is one of the locations where they do have an operating airfield. But it's a long flight from from Kinshasa east across pretty much uh, roadless uh, territory. There are only 1,800 miles of paved road in the entire country, and the country extends the distance from the Mississippi to the eastern seaboard. I mean, it's as large as the eastern United States.
0: Pretty scary uh, situation.
1: Well, it's something you know. Americans just don't. We we don't we don't appreciate. Right. Don't understand it. Right. Uh, we don't understand a lot of things about the rest <laughs> sure. of the world, unfortunately.
0: So then the question circles back to the work that you're doing there, and how much of a difference can it make? How much of an impact can it have? Given well, the scope of what we're talking about.
1: Well, that, that, you know that's a question I get asked a lot by folks here in Napa. Um, I think that what I'm doing is helping. Uh, men and women who have chosen the military uh, to do some, you know, we call it military decision-making process. It's really problem-solving. It's critical thinking. It's uh, its thinking things through from the beginning of do we really have a problem to how do we solve the problem? Uh I think what I do in large part, and and sometimes these are one and two week workshops, is I just really kind of give them a framework for how to think about problems and issues that face mm-hmm. their country. That's really more what I'm doing.
0: So how it to, comes back to, to that mindset that we were talking about earlier.
1: Sure, sure. Taking a long term mindset, t- take, taking a long term look at what the issues are, rather mm-hmm. than just short term fixes. Mm-hmm.
0: And what kind of military are you dealing with there? What kind of officers? What kind of soldiers? What what is what is their approach? What what is
1: that like? Many of the officers in the armed forces are appointed because of their tribal position. They've gained uh, promotions and access to resources based on their uh, affiliations. Uh, it's who they know. Um, many of them are well educated, though there there is high literacy the uh, the the language that's spoken there if uh, if not the native tongue which is Lingala or Swahili uh, they speak French they all speak French and they all read French um, and they're and they're better educated than um, they, they are well educated given the the circumstances mm-hmm. that they've grown up in the average army officer uh, colonels make about eighty dollars a month that's that's what their salary is Um because of that, uh, a lot of officers are looking for a handout anywhere they can get it from mm-hmm. other people. I've been approached by officers uh, in, in workshops to loan them things, to bring them iPads. Uh, can you loan me $600 to close out my mortgage on my house? On my house, um, I, I, I have some challenges when I travel. I mean, I build relationships. Some of these officers I've been working with for three years now, and some of them take advantage of that friendship.
0: Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about how different it is, if it, if it is, doing this in places like the Congo as opposed to someplace like Jordan, like being in Amman, um, where the mindset is very different.
1: Well, the mindset is very different in Amman-Jordan, but, but Jordan, I have to tell you, uh, f- first of all, um, His Majesty King Abdullah's military is much more professional in the preparation and training. He mm-hmm. requires all of his officers to be able to speak English. He sends a lot of them to uh, foreign training. Uh, King Abdullah was a major when I first met him. He he went through Special Forces training at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, huh. when I was stationed there. I actually escorted him around the, the Army post. Um, They're much more professional. They see themselves sitting in a critical location in Jordan. The Jordanian military really takes a higher view of uh, being able to assimilate a lot higher level of of training and equipment. Uh, Because they're a small country, they've really gotta have higher level capabilities to see across the borders and to see outside their territory. Um, So they they have much more sophisticated equipment. Um, And they also spend more time in the military. Most of them uh, will will retire in their fifties, late fifties, um, and then be associated somehow with the with uh, King Abdullah's government mm-hmm. in some in some role or post. You don't see many Jordanian officers retiring fully. They they normally. Will uh, fit in somewhere else in the government, as opposed to the Congo, where a lot of the people leave the military and they go back to their to their uh, to their native situation to their tribal locations, wherever that might be
0: mm-hmm. Talk about how they see the world, how they see their place their country 's place in the world.
1: Jordanians see their place in the world as being critical to supporting the refugee uh, population, refugee situation. Unfortunately, it was forced on them uh, up in the northeast corner of um, of Amman, out towards the Turkish border, Syrian border. I was only about twenty miles away from the border, and there's quite a few refugees. I, I was telling, I was telling somebody the other day, they they were they were showing me pictures of the horrible situations where. Um, Refugees in Hungary have left a lot of trash and and uh, trashed the the areas and locations. And I said, you know, the things I've seen that were that were visited upon the refugees uh, fleeing have, have been pretty terrible too. I can kind of understand that situation yeah, from that respect. Um, they see Jordanians. I think see themselves playing a role in in uh, the the pan Arab. Um, leadership role because because they're westernized enough they do understand how the west views the middle east uh, but yet they they are you know they are arabs they are they do in speak in fact speak uh, arabic they're muslim and but much more secular than other countries around
0: them. and in the congo
1: oh the congo the congo is a really tough situation jeff um, you know they there have been so many people impacting their their, uh, their culture, their society, their country, starting with the Belgians, you know, in the late 1800s. Right. They've been taken advantage of and abused for over 140 years. Um, I don't think the Congolese see themselves playing a role... Uh, in the international world. What they are just trying to do is really survive. I, that, that's, probably, that, that's probably the most destitute, direst situation. Uh, they have a very high mortality rate, infant mortality rate. Uh, half the population is under the age of 24. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 80 million people, lots of young people, and um, it's, uh, they're, they're really on subsistence uh, right now, just, just barely making it. There are a lot of hungry people in the country.
0: And what role does the military play as it relates to the problems the country faces? Domestically, how is the military viewed?
1: I always start off my workshops by talking a little bit about that and saying, you know, institutions are where uh, countries hang their hat for trying to establish themselves in the international uh, setting. And the military in many countries plays a significant role in establishing itself as one of those institutions you can count on. In some countries, not so much. In some countries, the the institution of the military is dreaded and feared. Um, I try and encourage the military in the Congo – to take on that role of being the protector of the people, and and to ha- to have a sense that what you purchase in terms of military equipment should be in support of defending the, the country and the people, not to control the people. You know, population resource control measures worked really well in the Soviet Union for for seventy five years, uh, primarily because it kept people under the thumb of the military. Uh, that's not. That's not the view that that we are trying to encourage, you know mm-hmm. when we go out from the US. We're trying to encourage them to look at um, look at situations in terms of protecting population. I mean, this is one of the comments I made to some friends in law enforcement. I encourage, I discouraged the people who were talking about bringing MRAPs back from Afghanistan and giving them to police forces. I said, that's oh. the worst thing we could possibly do. This was seven years ago. I made this comment up in Detroit well, where we – L.A.
0: found that out in the 80s. <laughs> it didn't work yeah, out too exactly.
1: well. exactly. L.A. found it out in the 80s, and we found it out in Ferguson. I mean, remember right. the remember the startling video of the kid sitting up on top of the armored vehicle? I mean, what a terrible thing to do. You know what is the role what is the proper role of the military? The Hungarians just found out i guess the day before yesterday that uh, they can in fact use their military to police the areas around the the uh, borders and against the refugees and now that 's happening
0: i mean I guess part of it and this goes to something you touched on earlier, which I want to talk more about. The confused, and I'm being polite, the confused view that most Americans have about what goes on in the rest of the world. And the truth of the matter is that the role of the military in in many of these places is different it's not the same as it is here that there are different situations and different roles and different responsibilities and this strange notion that we have here in america that somehow we are the model that everybody needs to emulate is is so misguided in so
1: many ways it's totally misguided uh, i was in egypt uh, early on when the um, when the troubles began down around tiger square and i remember the um, the officers, the Egyptian officers, telling me that during election day, they are not allowed to vote. Army, army uh, personnel cannot vote. They are, however, used to police the area. And the Egyptians take it uh, as an article of faith that, that when they are manning guard posts around uh, polling sites, they do not talk to civilians at all. They don't encourage them or discourage them from voting or voting for a particular candidate. And the officers are very proud of that. They said they, they play no role in determining who's going to run the country. Now, you and I both know that CeCe uh, is not in power because he was a, a <laughs> right, wilting yeah. flower. You know, he's a, he, he was a general. So uh, I, I know what the colonels are saying, but it's not always the way. Can you imagine having military troops uh, manning polling places uh, here in Napa?
0: Well, I think uh, it'll be—it almost <laughs> happened in Florida. I mean, maybe not in Napa. Yeah, right. <laughs> but but it it goes to this larger point of just the lack of understanding that that people have of what really goes on in the rest of the world.
1: A classmate of mine yesterday uh, had lunch with him, and he told me that he'd like to write a book, help me write a book about my travels and my exploits. And I said, one of the most significant things I'd like—I would like to write about—is just explaining to Americans how much different the world is than the way we would perceive it from from all the social media that we get here in, in the United States as well as, you know, entertainment in general.
0: It's interesting because it's counterintuitive because social media should open it up in theory. Social media should make the rest of the world more accessible and, and more clear to Americans and vice versa. It's not sure it's doing that.
1: It's, it's absolutely not doing that. It's giving us a skewed view of what the rest of the world is like. That's why I watch a lot of television. I, I watch Al Jazeera whenever I'm um, in an area of the world where I can get it. Uh, I watch their broadcasting. Uh, I also watch um, uh, the Russian uh, television. Mm-hmm. Um, it's terribly slanted in favor of Russia. Um, but it's also very humorous the way they de- the way they depict and show Western uh, Western culture and Western you know actions.
0: What is I want to come back to the Congo for a second because when you talked about Russia, it really made me think about this. What is the influence of the Chinese on the African continent right now, as you've seen it? Because one of the things we've heard a lot about is tremendous Chinese influence in Africa. One be- primarily because of natural resources, oil and other resources as well
1: china owns all the hotels where i stay uh the only the only exception to to anywhere i've been is that uh in egypt the which obviously is part of the continent of africa the 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 military owns most of the uh hotels in egypt but uh, the Chinese are prevalent everywhere. Chinese are always staying at uh, hotels where I'm at, and they're usually – they come in, in two flavors. They're businessmen in coats and ties, or they're engineers with mm-hmm. hard hats tucked into their shoulder bags. And they're going out to engineering sites. Lots of building going on. Um, and, and I see a lot of building going on in uh, Kinshasa, in the capital of the Congo. But they're all – Is it
0: helping? Um, is, it, is it helping the economy?
1: It, it is, in a way, but we're talking about a city, uh, Jeff. The city of Kinshasa is 10 million people, and there are no operating traffic lights, none. Traffic uh, is congested and chaotic all the time. There are seven robots, uh, seven-foot-tall robots that act as travel traffic cops. They flash green, then they spin 90 degrees and flash red. That's what they consider to be traffic wow. control. So um, it's helping a little bit in terms of buildings getting built. There are some skyscrapers that are being built, but and the projects are all run and supervised by Chinese uh, construction companies. Mm-hmm
0: and And what is the attitude towards the chinese in africa
1: it 's very friendly they, they They actually are very uh, happy that the Chinese are there the, Chi- the, uh, the Congolese military has spent a lot of time in China looking at and buying equipment from them they 've bought small arms from the chinese um, they 've bought some vehicles. Unfortunately, none of the vehicles are running i mean the The Congolese military literally has no transport. they have no aircraft that are operational they it's abysmal it's a foot it's a foot soldier uh, war for them wherever they go and they 've got troops in the east fighting against joseph Kony and and the l r a
0: and who are their natural enemies what What are the problems that the military seemingly has to face or potentially has to face
1: um Militant gangs, militant uh, groups from across the border from Rwanda, Burundi, mm-hmm. Uganda, who strike across the border uh, they are now are in pursuit they 're able to pursue them back across the border. Um, some of them are some of those units that do that are u n uh, sanctioned and u n supervised uh, Congolese military organizations. We've got some U.S. Special Forces operating in the northeast corner of Congo, also, that are trying to pinpoint Joseph Kony's location and find him and his lieutenants. So, the, the, what they're facing is primarily from the east, um, and it's armed bands that come over and rob and and uh, you know pillage small vi- small villages and and carry off people, kill people, kidnap a lot of kidnapping in the eastern part of the country.
0: You're there under the auspices of the Naval Postgraduate School. That's correct. Talk a little bit about how that happens. Are you contracted? Do they contract for you? How does that work? Or is the, it the U.S. government that's putting that in place? How does that
1: all work? The program is called Defense Institution Building. It's a U.S. State Department-sponsored program. Through the State Department. Yeah, through the State Department. And they contract with the Naval Postgraduate School for my services. Other people with expertise in particular uh, engineering fields are in, in some uh, policy field I go I go normally with a team of people mm-hmm. i'm the I'm the one guy who usually has the experience in program management and acquisition material acquisition uh, process. So we go along as a team there'll, there'll usually be two or three of us and uh, it's always contracted through the state from with the state department with the host nation
0: mm-hmm. Talk about what it's like for you when you're in these places and then suddenly you know you get on a plane and you're back here in Napa.
1: It, there's 20 al- hours later. Yeah, there's always there's always significant culture shock for me because I come home, and when I first started doing this, I, I've been working – I've been on the faculty at the school in Monterey for 15 years. Uh, I've been traveling almost 12 years. And in the beginning, it was strange to come home and someone would say, well, what did you do last week? And I would say, well, I was in uh, Bogota, Colombia, or I was in um, – uh, Dushanbe, Tajikistan. Uh, people, did, first of all, people started out not believing me. They say, "Oh, you're you're you're, you're, <laughs> you're making yeah, that you're, up. you're making that up." <laughs> uh, but uh, but I I've, um, I've 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 grown accustomed to people not not being in a little bit of shock. But it is it is a shock to me to come home. We really are an insulated community here in Napa. We're not as worldly as we like to think that we are. Uh, people, people pretty much know what's going on in Napa, and that's about it.
0: I think that the whole country's like that, though. I don't think that it's just indigenous to Napa. I think if you went most places in the U.S., I think if you went to New York, you know, you might find you know a little more knowledge of what's going on out there. But I think that there's also a sense of isolation.
1: There, there is a sense of isolation, and people in America just don't have time to read and know about the rest of the world because they're bombarded and uh, constantly impacted by so much other media that they don't have time to, to read about what's going on around the world
0: well you know reality television takes up so much of their time
1: yeah, I'm much more interested in <laughs> knowing what the Kardashians are doing and right. knowing what knowing about the Pope's visit. I'm really that's one of the that's one of the things I think that breaks open our country and makes us really look at ourselves and look around us when we have someone like Pope Francis coming to our to our country. By the way, having just arrived from Cuba, which would never have happened in the past, I think it's a I think it's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Have you been to Cuba? Uh, no, I'm not allowed to go to Cuba. I can't because of my security clearance. Mm-hmm. But I'm really hoping that that changes or else I'll give up my security clearance because I really <laughs> want to see Havana. Right. Believe b- it or not. B- before it a,
0: changes. Well, I mean, that's a, what everybody says. But I think there's some truth to that.
1: As a retired Special Forces officer, I really want to go to Che Guevara's gravesite. Tell me why. Um my 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 comrades in special forces hate it when I say this, but had I not been on the government side in El Salvador, I probably would have been a guerrilla. I just feel I feel very moved by uh, our motto, which is to free the oppressed. De oppresso liber. And that's what he and Fidel Castro were trying to do initially from the Sierra Maestres in, in the center of Cuba. They were trying to free the oppressed. They went a little too far, but... I kind of agree with what they did in Cuba. Mm-hmm. It just went a little awry <laughs> after a number of years. <laughs> yeah, my classmates call me a socialist, but I, I don't accept that that imprimatur.
0: Well, Bernie Sanders is embracing that. Now, yes, so exactly. not—he's trying to turn it into not a bad word anymore. Where are you going
1: next? I'm home. Or for What do a, you know? Well, I'm home for a while. No, I actually know. I the first week in December, I will be headed to Lebanon. I'll be in Beirut for ten days. <clears throat> and then back to the Congo.
0: And talk about Beirut. What's what's your mission there?
1: Well, things have much improved in Beirut. It used to be that we would have to fly into Cyprus, commercial airlines, mm-hmm. and then take a helicopter over into Beirut and land right inside the embassy compound. And that's primarily because the airport in Beirut is controlled by Hezbollah. If you sit in the uh, lounge, the Lufthansa lounge, looking out the windows, you see the black flags of Hezbollah flying in the south part of Beirut. It's a very dangerous place. We don't go anywhere. We stay on the embassy compound. We go straight to our to our site where we train the lebanese military and we go then take a circuitous route back we never take the same route out that we take back we ride in armored cars it's uh it can be potentially very dangerous Um, the situation in beirut is similar to other parts of that that region Um, lots of competing interests lots of warring factions lots of people up in arms with each other and at close proximity i mean in some cases they're only a quarter of a mile apart between between one particular faction, you know, the Druze, the mm-hmm. Christians, uh, the phalangists and other other parties. So it's a, it's a it's a powder keg, but at the same time it's a beautiful, you know, seaside city. Right. Um, I've gone out to Crusader forts. I, I did get I did get permission one afternoon the last time I was there to go out for four hours. I had two bodyguards with me. And we went out and visited Biblos, which is where one of the Crusader forts is, sitting on the on the coastline.
0: Wow. We forget. I mean, you know, we hear it on the news, I suppose. But we forget that so much of the world is such a dangerous place. I mean, that goes to what we were talking about before in terms of people being isolated.
1: Yes. And at the same time, sometimes those... those uh, Sometimes those names don't make much sense to me. I got, I received imminent danger pay, which is what we call – that's the proper term for combat pay. Uh, I was in Bogota, Colombia in May, beautiful city, and traveled all over the city in, in – I did not travel in a cab, but I did travel in an embassy vehicle uh, and went all over the city, went outside uh, to, to a Finco, uh, visited different parts, but I got extra money because they considered it to be – a danger zone but there were no restrictions on my travel right it's it's an odd place we live in Jim.
0: did you feel like you were in danger when you nope. were there
1: not in bogota colombia i speak the language i get along i've, I've <laughs> spent a lot of time there no i did not feel like it was dangerous at all and i get a sense of it i mean i i have a i have a sense of danger i i you know i was in afghanistan last year at the end of uh december and i did feel danger there my trip had been postponed because the the general that i was going to work for over there was killed the american two-star uh yeah it's uh i do feel it i get a i get a sense of danger
0: is that the place you felt the most danger lately Yes, in
1: Afghanistan. Oh yes, yeah. We've got, We went from 140,000 troops. We're down now to about six or seven thousand Americans. I mean, I was going out in convoys two years ago uh, with several vehicles. Now I go out with the vehicle I'm in and one other vehicle, maybe or not, or, or no, no chase vehicle at all. We're just out in a in an armored vehicle, uh, one vehicle, a driver, uh, a, a vehicle commander, me, and one other person as a bodyguard, and that's it.
0: And yeah. do you think sometimes why am I doing this? What, what, I almost this? always wonder why am I doing this. <laughs>
1: right. Yes.
0: And what do you conclude?
1: I conclude that I feel like I'm doing something, I'm making a difference, and as long as I feel that way, and I also have a little, I have a little little um, checklist that I go through. Is it important what I'm doing? Can I be can I be assured of my safety within reason? Uh, am I going to make a difference, and what's the bring back uh, that I can pass on to my colleagues that will help them in the future? I mean, those, those are the kind of the four questions I ask myself when I'm headed out on a mission. And I can turn things down. I've never turned down a mission, and I'm, and I'm proud of that in the sense that I feel like I'm making a difference in the countries I've been to.
0: Mm-hmm. What country do you think you've made the most difference, the most impact?
1: Without a doubt, I've made the most difference in Belgrade, Serbia. I have watched them over the last five years. <clears throat> to the point now where they are conducting some pretty advanced research and development. They're transforming the 11 former Soviet uh, industrial operations plants into commercial use. They're actually building commercial products and selling them on the, on the world market. We've been able to help them transform their military capability into, in, into uh, meaningful industrial uh, capability. So for that, I, um, I feel I'm very proud of that.
0: Do you still go back there?
1: Uh, I do. I do. I go back to Belgrade. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful. beautiful city. I understand. It's a beautiful it's city. It's at the confluence of the Sava and the Danube River. It's the northernmost point where the where the uh, you know the Turks were turned mm-hmm. around at, at, at Belgrade, and uh, basically the buffer zone between the Arab world and Europe.
0: You touch on something that's so interesting because it relates to. It's really a subset of the broader issue we were talking about before in terms of people being isolated and not understanding what goes on in the rest of the world and and there is some you know there is a point that you make that's valid about people being busy in their lives and you know forget the joke about reality television people are busy they're consumed with what it is that they're doing but the other part that's missing from the equation for a lot of people, is this sense of history an understanding of history and what all these places and things represent within a broader historical context.
1: I, I think they miss it, and uh, I will just tell you that one of the things I try and do before I take off, uh, and this, this, was, uh, this was part of our preparation for missions and Special Forces back in the 70s and 80s, uh, you do a country study. You know, you actually study where you're headed to, and you learn about the culture, and you get a sense of the history. And I try and do that now. Before I head off somewhere, I try and get some sense of, of where I'm headed to in the context of why, why are things the way they are. I think that's critical, and um, i i've I've told my wife that I'm about ready to give up on these vacations for vacation's sake and rather um, associate our trips headed overseas somewhere to do something while we're there that helps someone. Uh, I think our next trip to Costa Rica, we're going to try and work at a um, at a health clinic as a volunteer, uh, help in some aspect of things that are going on for refugees. In in the capital of uh, San Jose, Costa Rica, they have a refugee camp of displaced economic refugees from Nicaragua, about Hmm. 30,000 Nicaraguans living in the City dump at the outskirts of, of San Jose. Uh, I think we're going to go down there and spend some time on vacation, but really try and also do something with one of the aid agencies that's there. I'm I'm ready to quit vacating and and try and and, and instead try to do something. It's my own personal Peace Corps operation.
0: Mm-hmm. You know? Well, it's not a zero sum game either. I mean, you're still vacationing. You're doing some things for fun, I'm sure, but you're also doing something worthwhile. It's yeah. not not. Zero-sum.
1: Yeah. I told, I told a journalist uh, 25 years ago that, that Special Forces was like the Peace Corps, only with M-16s. And Sergeant Shriver, got, he got so upset, he, t- he called the general that I worked for and said, I don't know who this guy Chadwick is, but uh, you know tell him that we're, Peace Corps is nothing like Special Forces. Well, you know, we really are. Uh, ideally, we are improving the lot of people where we go to. We just happen to be armed. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's not a bad thing
0: well, it's also a different equation in terms of helping it's It's understanding what's helping again, we touched on this before what's helping in that particular place in that particular country the The metrics are not the same as they are in Napa or somewhere in the u s
1: right. I felt a strong incl- inclination, though, to go to Calistoga and to just volunteer, and that's what I did. You know, I drove up there, walked in, looked around for somebody with a clipboard and a placard around their neck, and I said, hey, what can I do to help? And I ended up horsing, you know, cases of water off a truck. Um, n- not a really important job, but at least, I fe- you know, I felt like I was doing something, and if enough people do that, we can make a difference.
0: Bill Jadwick, I thank you so much for coming in.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Thank you.
0: NapaBroadcasting.com Controversy, fun, and conversation. All the things that radio used to be.